Good morning. Certainly is good to be with you again. Certainly is good to see all of you present. We appreciate your presence here. We're, we appreciate the, the God of heaven for providing us another opportunity to study his word, to sing these songs of praises <coughs> unto him. He is worthy to receive all praise, honor, and glory, and it is our privilege to do uh, our rendering to him. Luke chapter 17, if you have your Bibles, and we appreciate the, the scripture reading this morning, which was so capably read, I want us to draw our attention to the subject of uh, living faithfully, uh, more specifically doing the right thing uh, when it is so difficult to do so. Doing the right thing, though people make it difficult to do so. I suppose it's a common a lot in life. You live in this world long enough and you find out very quickly that people are good at putting your faith to the test. People are good at challenging you and putting a stumbling block before you to make you act unfaithfully. And here in Luke chapter 17, the challenge of the apostles is not knowing what the right thing to do is, but consistently doing what is right. It's not knowing what is the right thing to do, but the degree by which they will carry it out. We'll draw a four quick points from the passage by way of introduction here. And the first thing that our Lord says is, faith will be challenged. He says in verse 1, it is impossible that no offenses should come. The ESV renders it temptation, stumbling blocks, something in life will cause you to act contrary to the will of God. Something in life will tempt you to not continue to do the right thing. It is guaranteed to happen, Jesus says. It is impossible that it will not happen. But then secondly, Jesus says, our faith will be challenged usually because of the behavior of other people. He says in that same verse, but woe to him through whom they come. Not only will our faith be challenged and tested and tried, not only will we, we be tempted to stop doing the right thing, but usually at the end of the temptation is another person. Woe to him through whom they come. But then thirdly, Jesus tells us that it's not about what the other person is doing. Jesus says it's about what you do in response. In verse 3 he says, take heed to whom? Yourselves. So often it's the case, though, that we want to talk about other people. We want to talk about the circumstances in life, and we offer those up as the excuses why we stopped doing the right thing. We want to talk about other people's faith, but Jesus does not want to talk about other people. Jesus does not want to talk about the circumstances in life. Jesus wants to talk about what you do in spite of the circumstances. But with regard to the other person, Jesus says it's not like it's going unnoticed. He says it would be better for that person if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than he should offend one of these little ones. Why? Because of what you are going to do to that person? It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Justice will be meted out, Jesus says, but not by you. It is not your place to dispense the justice. Jesus says there is something that you do and there is something that God does. 
There is a place where you stand and there is a place where God stands and you ought not be confusing the two places. But so often it's the case that we want to move from here to here. And it's what you see of the apostles. They want to stop doing what they know is right because they want to move from their obligation to now what God does. It is not your responsibility to carry out the justice. Take heed to yourself, Jesus says. Your responsibilities. What is my responsibility? Jesus essentially teaches here, keep doing the right thing. That's point number four. Keep doing the right thing when other people even make it difficult. Keep doing the right thing. He, keeps, he gives a scenario here. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And what follows is an attempt by the apostles to move from their things to God's things. What if he does it again? If he repents, forgive him. What if he does it again? If he repents, forgive him. Jesus isn't giving a new teaching. He is simply providing the scope by which they are to carry that original teaching out. If he repents, forgive them. What they want to know is, where is the line? When can I stop doing the right thing? Where I can now be in God's place and mete out the justice and the judgment and the retribution. What if he does it again? If he repents, forgive him. What if he does it again? Jesus says seven times if he, in a day, if he repents, you forgive. Matthew's account of the same teaching is found in Matthew 18. And there, Matthew adds that the Lord says, seven, not seven times, but seventy Times seven times. Friends, what Jesus is teaching here is that other people's actions, other people's behavior do not absolve you from your responsibility to do what is the right thing to do. Just because somebody acts unrighteously, just because somebody acts ungodly, just because you have given up your, your life to live for, for the knowledge of God and pursuit of the cross of Jesus Christ. Does not mean that everybody else is going to fall in line with your pursuit. What you might find out is that so often the temptation to stop doing the right thing comes from those even closest to you. Those inside the Lord's body are often a temptation to leave the church. Our Lord's exhortation is to keep doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do. That being said, friends, this doesn't mean it's going to be uh, easy. It, in fact, it's going to be downright difficult. In fact, you can perhaps relate to the apostles' response when they retort back to Jesus, Lord, increase our faith. And though we began in Luke's account of the gospel, we're not going to stay here. We're merely using this as an introduction to our thoughts of the teaching. For the application as to how we can keep doing the right thing, uh, go ahead and be turning to Genesis chapter 50. We're going to be in the Old Testament for this application. How can we keep doing the right thing when people make it so difficult to do so? I suppose that we could have answered our question in the passage that we began with. And we could have left that passage by saying, just do it. 
Just do the right thing. Essentially, that's what Jesus will tell the apostles. In fact, I would encourage you to go home and continue reading Luke chapter 17. And there you find Jesus giving a parable about a master and a servant and the servant's duty to the master in that he simply does what the master told him to do. And at the end of the day, the servant says, I'm just an unprofitable servant. It was my duty to do it. But we'll note the example of Joseph here. Joseph's life is made difficult. It's made difficult by the people that are closest to him, his own family. And perhaps what makes Joseph's example more relatable is the fact that all he ever tries to do is good. And yet all he receives in return is wrong. He's hated by his brothers. He's thrown into a pit, stripped of his clothes, and his brothers take that tunic, dip it in blood, and show his father, telling his father that he's dead. They sell him into slavery. We're all familiar with that account of history. And so we don't have time to go into the story of Joseph. We fast forward, though, to the end of the story where the tables have been turned. The tables are reversed. Joseph is now the second most important man in all of Egypt. The second most powerful man behind Pharaoh. And now his brothers are before him. In fact, they're bowing before Jesus. Jacob, their father, has now died. And in their mind, Joseph is going to get us back. Joseph is going to repay us for all the evil that we did to him. And it is from Joseph's perspective and response where we draw our three points as to how we can keep doing the right thing, though people make it so difficult to do so. These will not be revolutionary thoughts by any means. Others have said them. David has said them. I have said them over time. But friends, we live in an environment where people are continuously and increasingly doing the wrong thing where the world seems bent on doing evil and it will not get better. Unless people return to the knowledge of God, you cannot exchange God for the lie and expect improvement. It's in light of this environment where it's worthy to note by way of remembrance how we act. How Christians ought to be behaving. We're not talking about how the world behaves. How Christians ought to be behaving. How to do right when the world makes it so difficult to do so. Young Christian. Young people. Those recently baptized. Please pay attention. Number one. Know your place. Get off God's seat. After their plea for forgiveness, Joseph, in verse 19 of Genesis 50, Joseph says to his brothers, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? Am I in the place of God? Usually the reason that we want to stop doing the right thing is because at some point we determine that that's our place to sit on God's seat. And what's going on in the minds of Joseph's brothers is that Joseph certainly does occupy that position. Joseph is literally in a position where if he wanted, he could pay his brothers back 100 times over for their evil done to him. But in Joseph's mind is, that is not my place to sit. What Joseph understood, friends, is what we must understand. 
If we're going to continue to do the right thing and act righteously, when people make it difficult, that seat of justice and judgment and retribution and vengeance is not my place. That is not my business. But there are two reasons why we feel that we're obligated to stand there, though. Number one is the severity of the offense. How badly somebody hurt me. And, and the higher you go on that severity scale, the greater the damage against me, the bigger the crime, the more I feel entitled to sit in God's seat. He hurt me real bad. He hurt me real bad. There's no way I will ever forgive that person for what he did to me. And certainly I will not forget. Have you ever been sold into slavery? Have you been stripped of your clothes? Have your siblings negotiate a price for your life? Have your siblings tell your father that you've been killed? All you've ever done was right. And all they've ever done to you is wrong. You can almost say that if there was anybody that was entitled to stand in God's place. To execute vengeance and, and justice and judgment. You could make a good case for Joseph. But Joseph says that is not my place. Am I in the place of God? But a second reason why we feel we're, in, we're entitled to, to sit there is the frequency of the offense. Not just the severity. The frequency. They keep doing it. Lord, how often shall I forgive my brother? Seven times? And Lord says, no, I don't say seven times. Seventy times, seven. They, they retort, what if he does it again? If he repents, forgive. What if he does it again? If he repents, forgive. You know, Jesus does not have to give any more commentary back. He's already given the answer. But just so we're clear, 70 times, 7 times, if he repents, forgive. I know what you may be thinking. And it's probably the same thing that was on the apostles' minds. If that person repented, wouldn't that mean that he'd stop doing it? Friends, let me ask you. The last time that you asked God for the forgiveness of your sins... You mean to tell me that you never sinned again? The last time that you asked God to forgive you of that particular sin, it seems like everybody has a pet sin. The last time that you asked God to forgive you of that sin? You mean to tell me you never repeated that sin again? How severe is sin against God and how often do we do it? And yet God continues to do the right thing. Friends, what Jesus is asking his disciples to do is simply what God does for them. What God does for his children. That we are continually going to God in prayer, asking the forgiveness of our sins. You know how often we do that here in an assembly? The, the closing prayer, the, 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 the morning prayer, the prayers in between. You, you hear it, don't you? Forgive us of our sins in Jesus' name. I don't know what we're doing in an hour that we have to ask God for the forgiveness of our sins four times in, in an hour. But aren't you glad that God doesn't set limits like we do? 
Aren't you glad God does not act like us? Romans chapter 12, 17 and 18. Paul will talk about God's place and our place. Romans 12, beginning in verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. What if it's not possible? What if I can't do it? Can I now then stop doing the right thing? No, other people's actions do not absolve you from doing right. In verse 19, he says, do not avenge yourselves. Okay, what if it gets hard? He says, give place to wrath. It is not your place. Get off God's seat. Move over and let God sit there. Give place to wrath. Why? Whose place is it? For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Okay, what's my place then? If you have me stand over here, what's my responsibility? He says it. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heat coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Your place is to continue to do the right thing. God's place is to execute justice and judgment. Do not stand in God's place. God has given us a responsibility toward other people, friends, and that responsibility is doing good even when they make it difficult. But we want to see the enemy get his. Sometimes we want front row seats uh, to see the justice being meted out. But God says that is not your business. How can we keep doing the right thing? Make sure that we are not sitting on God's seat. Take heed to yourself, Jesus says, Know your place. But then secondly, trust in the presence of God. Back to Genesis chapter 50 verse 20. Joseph says to his brother, But as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. One of the challenges of facing difficulties and trials and challenges is the realization that in spite of the worst of circumstances... God is still reigning on his throne, high and lifted up. You know, we sometimes sing the song, This is my father's world. Though the wrong seems off so strong, God's still the ruler yet. The natural inclination, though, is to question the very presence of God in the midst of difficulties. Because if God is good and there is a presence of evil, then that must mean God left somewhere. It's a common confusion throughout Scripture. You think of the angel coming to Gideon in Judges chapter 6. When the angel comes to Gideon, he says, The Lord is with you, Gideon. And you remember how Gideon responded? Well, if the Lord is with us, why is all this happening to us? Or you think of Habakkuk when he looks at all the wickedness of Israel and he begins to question God. Where is God when all this is happening? Why doesn't he act when the wicked surround the righteous? What if you were the one on a caravan on your way to Egypt? At what point would you begin to say, where is God? If God is with me, why is all this happening to me? 
Where is God when all this is happening? You see, he was with Joseph. You find those words in Genesis 39, verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph when he was sold to Potiphar. How then can we overcome the temptation to do the right thing in the midst of difficulties? Trust in the presence of God. There are two thoughts relative to that in the presence of God and being confident in the presence of God. Number one is the thoughts of comfort. Because God is there... He collects my tears and puts them in a box. Psalm 56, 8. Thoughts of comfort. But then there's also the thought that one day I will have to answer for the things I do in this body. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to what he has done, whether it be good or bad, 2 Corinthians 5, 10. There is an obligation, and it is due to that obligation that Joseph continues to do the right thing. He trusted in the presence of God. When God seems to have forsaken him, Potiphar's wife makes advances towards Joseph. And by reading that account, it seems to me that if Joseph wanted, he could have been with Potiphar's wife and nobody would have ever found out. But Joseph understood that he was not alone. He understood that the Lord was there. He trusted in the Lord's presence. Joseph knew that God never left his throne. and So he'll tell Potiphar's wife, how then could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Genesis 39 verse 9. And now his brothers are bowing down before him after they hated him. Plotted to kill him, throw him into that pit, tell his father that he's dead, sell him to slavery. I mean, the events that go on in Joseph's life, you can almost make the case that if there were anybody, anybody that, 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 that we might give a license to act unbecomingly, that it, it, we can easily see how that might, that Joseph's events might make somebody bitter and angry and resentful. And, and, and to pay back those responsible, certainly we would give a license to Joseph. But Joseph didn't use life's circumstances as an excuse to stop doing the right thing. Joseph trusted in the presence of God. You meant evil against me, he tells his brother. God meant it for good. You planned evil for me, but God took your evil plan and turned it into good. Which segues to our third point. How can we keep doing the right thing in the midst of challenges? Learn to see the positive side of trials. The rest of verse 20. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Not only trust in the presence of God, not only trust God to act, but trust that God uses the trial to bring about good. Truth of the matter is, friends, there are many things that we cannot get without going through the trial. You think of James in his opening of his book, My Brethren Count It All Joy, when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces Patience. Count it. That is, make the decision. Make the decision to see your, the benefit of your trials. To see trials differently from now on. Make that decision. 
that without the trial, you cannot get that same benefit. One of the things that we do frequently at school is we take tests. The teachers try to convince us it's for our good. Uh, I'm, I'm inclined to think otherwise, but I, I trust their wisdom above my own. And they're inclined to remind us that tests are good because it lets them know and lets us know whether we know the material. Anybody, I, I suppose, can claim to fly a plane. I suppose anybody here can say that they're professional pilots. But you know, until that's tested, I don't know if I will get in a plane with you. How do we know? Well, we've got to test them. You've got to pass the test to get your driver's license. You've got to pass the test. Anybody can claim to be a Christian. How do you know? How does God know who's the real Christian? Put that Christian to the test. The Hebrews writer will exhort the saints there to see the benefit in their trials. They were looking at their trials as being greater than the benefit. As a result of that, they were on the verge of going back to Judaism because of their continuous persecution. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 5, the Hebrews writer tells them, Do not despise it. Nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by Him, God. He says in verse 9, We have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But He, God, for our profit, that we may be partakers of His holiness, that without the trial you could not get to that same spot. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Or you think of Paul's thorn in the flesh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul, not an actual physical thorn, but Paul has an infirmity that is such a pain for him that he prays three times for God to remove it. Three times to remove that thorn, and, and God responds, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And realizing the benefit of trials, Paul then goes on to say, Therefore, I will rather boast in my infirmities. I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and, and necessities and distresses and persecutions for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul understood the benefit in trials. And friends, if we want to continue to do the right thing, we have to focus on the benefit. Too often we're focused on the negative thing that's happening to us. And all we can see is the trial. We fail to see the benefit. Joseph says, you meant evil, but God meant it for good. Well, how so? Well, through me, many people were saved. How can we keep doing the right thing? How can we be persistent when people make life so difficult to be a Christian? Friends, we have to know our place. Take heed to yourself. Make sure that we are not sitting in God's seat. 
Vengeance, retribution, judgment, justice, that is not our place, that is not our business. But also trust in the presence of God in the midst of the trials. Joseph trusted in the presence of God, and for that reason he is able to continuously do right. But then also see the positive side of trials, see the benefit. Ultimately, it's an opportunity to be more like God. Nobody likes to suffer. Nobody in their right mind is seeking to suffer more. Nevertheless, Jesus says it's inevitable, it's impossible that offenses, that no offenses should come. And oftentimes the difficulties in life are the result of another person's actions and words. And friends, when that happens, may we make the determination not to let another person's actions or inactions cause me to stop doing the right thing. Make the determination that I won't cave in, I will not seek their harm, I will not repay evil with my own evil, I will not stop doing the right thing, I will pray for them, I will hope for them, I will seek the best for them, I will love them, even perhaps give up my life for them, because that's what Jesus Christ did for me. Keep doing right. Though the world becomes increasingly wrong. If you're not a Christian this morning, you need to be. Believe Jesus Christ to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess His name. Be immersed in water for the remission of your sins. You know, in the story of Jesus and humanity, it's humanity who made life hard for Jesus. All Jesus ever tried to do was good. He went about doing good, Acts chapter 10. And it seemed like all Jesus ever received in return was wrong. Doing good led him to the cross. Doing the will of his Father led him to suffer. He suffered so that we could live. He endured the cross because he never took his eyes off of the benefit. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 says of Jesus that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Because Jesus knew at the other side of the cross was our salvation. There was benefit. I want to come to him this morning if you haven't. If you are his child, make the determination that other people's actions will not cause you to stop doing the right thing. Will not cause you to live contrary to the will of God. Make the determination, no matter what sphere, what arena of life you find yourself in. Maybe it's the arena of forgiveness that you will be challenged, much like the apostles. Maybe it's in the arena of submission. Submission to government, submission to authority, submission to elders, children to parents, wives to husbands. Do not let the actions of the other person stop you from doing the right thing. Cause you to seek that, that limit where you can stop doing the right thing. And now you can sit in God's seat. But what if they don't act right? What if they keep doing it? Know your place. Get off God's seat. Allow God to act. Trust Him to act. Trust Him to work good. You do good. You continue to do good. Learn to see the benefit of it all. 
Maybe it's the case this morning that the world's actions have caused you to stop doing the right thing. Won't you make it right with him here this morning? If you need to respond to the Lord's invitation, we ask that you please make it known as we stand and as we sing.